Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well, staying safe, happy, and healthy. Thanks for joining me today. Later in the show, actor and comedian Sean Majumder joins me to talk about his new CBC television show, Race Against the Tide. On the show, 10 teams of two world-class, highly skilled sand sculptors compete to create extraordinary works of art made entirely out of sand while avoiding elimination. And not only are these best-in-show duos competing against each other, they're competing against, as the press release says here, Mother Nature's unstoppable ticking clock and the world's highest tide at New Brunswick iconic and beautiful Bay of Fundy. That's later on. First, let's get to know best-selling author Guy Vanderhaeg. His previous fiction includes the award-winning novels A Good Man, The Last Crossing, and The Englishman's Boy. He's a three-time Governor General's Award winner. He has the Writers' Trust Timothy Finley Award and the Harborfront Literary Prize, if you haven't guessed by now. He's a fantastic writer. He's also received many other awards, too many to mention, including the Order of Canada. His first novel in nearly a decade is August Into Winter, in stores right now. It's an epic story of crime and retribution, of war and its long shadow, and of the redemptive possibilities of love. Guy Vanderhag joined me via Zoom from Saskatchewan. I think that growing up, uh, we both shared a similar passion in the uh, classics illustrated comic books. <laughs> Somebody did some research here. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved those books uh, because I grew up in a very small town. It was uh, difficult to get all the reading material that I wanted, but comic books were abundant. And so I could read at least a, some kind of uh um, approximation of the classics by reading these comic books. Um, I love them. Do you think when you think back that you learned anything about storytelling from them, uh, about writing from them, or was it just a pastime that you enjoyed as a child? I'm sure that I absorbed um, a certain tale telling technique from them because one of the things they did is that they focused on story. I mean, if you're going to grab a child's attention, particularly sort of talk them into or, or inveigle them into uh, taking a classic, you, had, you, you, you were selective about what you chose. And I'm sure that, I mean, I, I read those, those comic books constantly. I read them over and over again, maybe through a process of osmosis, something stuck with me. I, I don't know, but I've always been, as a writer, I've always been very narrative driven. Um, I've always, I've always been very intrigued and interested in story. Well, you say that you grew up in a family of storytellers and you talk about your uncles in particular, um, you know, perhaps the combination of that, the one movie theater in your small town that only had a couple of movies a week showing, uh, you know, you picked up just this, this focus on, on narrative push that has stayed with you one way or the other. Yeah, I know what there were the movie theater in my small town showed one movie a week. Mm -hmm. um, and I would go to that movie when I was seven or eight years old, um, as long as it was not an adult movie and I could get into it. <laughs> and then that movie would, would, would kind of give me an impet impetus for fantasy play all through the, 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 the week until the next 
movie appeared. So if I went to see a classic, like, you know, the Vikings, <laughs> uh, I would play Viking for a week. Right. Or if I, you know, if I saw a Western, I would, you know, I would reenact what, what I saw in the movie and then I would add to the story. And it, for me, it was almost like a, a, a mental serial that I was running through my head, you know, for, for a week or, or sometimes two weeks. And I'm sure that this has been well documented uh, somewhere. But as all this was happening for you, you've got this love of story, whether it's intentional or not, or by osmosis or whatever. Um, were you writing anything down? Were you were you living in your head completely, or were you actually putting words on paper? I mean, this, I'm almost ashamed to to confess this, but I I. I started writing stories or attempting to write stories when I was very young. Um, my, my grandmother was a seamstress and she worked at home and my, my mother worked outside the home. Um, and so my grandmother became my babysitter and I would sit on the floor with a piece of paper and a pencil and I would start writing stories and then I would constantly be nagging at her uh, to spell words for me, like words <laughs> that I didn't know how to spell. Right. So I started um, writing or attempting to write when I was very young. And the other thing I did, I don't know if you remember having read the classics illustrated comic books, at the back, there was always an author bio. Right. And I, I used to read that when I was 10 or 11 years old to find out what was the secret. Right. You know, what, what did all of these people have in common? And I could never discover what they had in common, right? But I was looking for it. I thought, you know, maybe there's a magic key that I can discover here. Uh, and if I do the things that these people did, or, I mean, it, it's very odd. I started noticing how many 19th century writers had studied law, but didn't practice law. You know, and I, I would make these mental connections. Well, well, maybe that's the secret. And then another bio would come along and tell me, no, that wasn't the secret. You're listening to my interview with Guy Vanderhag. His book, August into Winter, is available wherever fine books are sold. I think the real secret is that there is no secret. Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, but you, you know, can I, only I, learn that from the doing of it. You know, absolutely. And, and you know, I've been teaching creative I just recently retired. I taught creative writing um, for over 25 years. And, and I would always say that exactly. There is no secret. You have to find your own secret and unlock that secret from you be, for, for yourself, because it's going to be different for everyone. Do you think it's a muscle? Do you think that the more you write, the stronger you get? Or is it just something that you can do and perhaps you, you have a modicum of talent and you can, you can train that talent. But if you are not gifted, can you figure out how to become a writer simply by doing it and, and, and exercising that muscle? You know, I think it's sort of obvious that you, you have to have a base level of talent, mm. right? But you know, it's like being a musician. I, I would never learn how to play the, the, the piano. Right. The thing is, is that if you have that base level of talent, what, what you're saying is you do work it like a, a muscle. And I notice even in my own case, when if I'm away from writing for a while, it takes me a, 
it takes me a while to get back in the groove. And it's, it's almost like anything, right? Um, you know, the old line about how do you get to Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, practice. And it's no different with writing. Um, but, uh, you know, I often tell students an anecdote about my own life. When I was in university, the three of us confessed to each other the dirty little secret that we wanted to be writers. Of the three, I think I would say objectively, I was the least talented. The other two, um, they wrote a novel, okay? And it, it, did, it wasn't, nobody picked it up. Mm -hmm. And so they moved on to other things. But I doggedly kept on doing what I was doing. Um, and of course I had jobs and I was doing it in my spare time, but it was something that I felt compelled to do. They had the talent, but they didn't have the compulsion. Um, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't I wouldn't say I was untalented, but at that point in time, those two people seemed to me, if there was anyone of the three that would succeed, it would likely be the other two. And they just didn't have the drive that you had. Yeah, I think I think they 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 took the first rejection and accepted it. Um, I've never been very good at accepting rejection. <laughs> I kind of, I, I, you know, I, I keep coming back for more punishment. When I first started writing, uh, I got rejected by everyone. I, I was rejected by, uh, you know, I'd aim high and, and submit something to the New Yorker, or I would just try and write for a local magazine published by some guy out of his basement who paid in beer. I just tried to get published somewhere. And I got rejected over and over and over again. And these were the days when you used to actually get a rejection letter. I think that's probably changed now. Uh, but I saved all of them because the rejection letters for me weren't uh, rejections, although they were. I wasn't making any money. But for me, it, it was um, a testament to my persistence and my resilience. So I would keep them all in the drawer. And every now and again, I'd have a look at them. And then I'd write another letter and try and get another story published. And I did that for years until I started getting published. And uh, for me, you know, rejection uh, pushed me rather than than stopped me. And and the thing is, is that you you don't, I, I think writers don't forget the reje you know, rejection letters they received. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm 70 years old. So when I first started writing, my last name was actually in Canada was actually fairly exotic, I think. Right. It's a strange sort of conjunction of vowels and the, the whole business, right? Yeah. So I remember getting a rejection letter from someone who said to me, I suggest you write in your first language. <laughs> Maybe the greatest rejection letter, letter no, ever. No, did I forget that? No, I did not forget that. Right? It was. It was just kind of like I would. You know, it's the only language I have. It's English. I'm sorry. I'm writing in my first language. That is fantastic. <laughs> I love that. You're listening to my interview with Guy Vanderhag. His new book is called August Into Winter. August Into Winter is uh, the new novel 
Uh, it's your first in a decade or almost a decade. Uh, was there a, a long break on purpose? Was there a recharging of batteries? You were teaching. Uh, what What was it? What was the break all about? Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of personal things. I mean, one of the things is that my, my uh, wife died almost nine years ago, and that was hugely disruptive for, for, for me psychologically. The, I mean, in every way. Uh, I had married when I was very young, so we had been together for almost 40 years. She had always been my first reader and my only reader. I was never a, the, the, a kind of writer who piecemeal gave things to my agent or my editor. So, you know, in a sense, I, I relied on her for, for many reasons. In that sort of period of my, my, my life, I kind of asked myself, will I ever write again? Um, can, can I do this again? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I decided to, to attempt to start writing again, a novel seemed too daunting to me. It just seemed too big. So I, I, I returned to writing short stories. So in 2015, I published a collection of short stories. So there was a period when I wasn't writing. And then when I started writing again, um, I wrote short stories. The other thing I will say is I've always been a slow writer. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that um, for almost 20 years now, I've been writing historical novels and historical novels actually require a lot of research. And, and so I think that generally speaking, they take more time to write. If I were to be ab absolutely truthful, I, I've always been, um, I've, I've, I've almost never have I ever written quickly. Um, I'm, I'm the sort of writer who, who writes and then throws things out and writes and revises and goes over things. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the explanation. I'm, I'm just slow, but then my slowness was compounded by any number of other things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of this novel and the complexity of the storytelling here. It's set in 1939, uh, set against a very big backdrop of a of a of a looming war, uh, but there's also uh, uh, very intimate moments in this movie. There are in this uh, novel, there are uh, depictions of corruption and cruelty and and all sorts of of elements, along with a lot of various characters that all come together to form a whole. But what I really enjoyed about it was. Um, seeing that when you think of uh, a story that would be set against the, the the looming Second World War, when you think of of some of the elements that uh, are in this book, you don't think that they're going to be funny or that there's going to be humor in the book. And I found uh, often that this book was darkly funny and made me laugh out loud. And I think that is so important because you can't have, as a writer, in a story of, of this magnitude you can't have all peaks you have to have valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks just to keep the the reader interested and to uh, allow the reader to work through the story and stay with the story um, is that important to you to to shake the tone up uh, from scene to scene in a novel yeah i mean a, a novel is a long-haul project and, and and what you say about it is is 
is very true. Um, readers actually need moments to coast in a novel. And when they're coasting, I think they also deserve to be entertained in, in, in some way. You're listening to my interview with Guy Vanderhag. His book, August Into Winter, is available wherever fine books are sold. The humor in the novel, I, I would sort of credit my mother's family. You, you mentioned earlier about the storytellers, who are these black Irish sardonic sorts of people. Like one of my mother's favorite sayings was, it's a great life if you don't weaken. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so in the, even in the darkest, the darkest moments, um, they could summon up something that was, was funny, but it was also sharp. Mm-hmm. I remember when my grandfather died, my father who was not, the most sensitive human being on the face of the earth. He was a, he was a great man. He was a you know, yep. lovely man in many ways. Anyway, he came, he, he was working in a mine. So he came home because my, my grandfather had died. And my mother was sort of frantically because she was really upset, was making sandwiches for everybody, right? So she made the sandwich and she ha- handed it to my father and, she's, and he took a bite of it and he said, where's the mustard <laughs> at this moment? And she said to him, you want mustard? Where do you want it? In your eye or up your nose? <laughs> you know, it's, it was just, you know, she had that kind of quick. Yep. Um, and I mean, for her, this was this was a calamitous moment, right? Well, I, I think but, it's a survival mechanism in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, it's... It, as they say, it's the oppressed who 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 kind of rely on 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 humor. You know, whether it's black comedians or the long history of Jewish comedians or or Irish uh, uh, writers, it's it's a way that you get through um, th- that helps you get through uh, really tough times. When you're researching uh, a book like August into winter, you want the details to ring true because there will be readers who know, you know, what kind of car cars people drove in 1939 or whatever it might be. There's you know, people will pinpoint the details, but you don't want to get bogged down by the details. Do you take liberties with, with historical truth? Um, Yes. I mean, there's, What I would say is that I take what I call artistic liberties. Mm. Um, I had I had studied actually studied history when I went to university. I at one at one time I thought that I might go on for an academic career, um, and so I avoided historical fiction for a long time because I was afraid of getting bogged down in in all that sort of stuff. I'm not a very bright person, and I suddenly realized that when you talk about historical fiction, the important word is the noun and not the adjective. So your first duty is to write a novel that people want to read. On the other hand, I'm quite scrupulous about finding out everything that I possibly can uh, in one sense. And, and in a historical novel, what, what appears is like the tip of the iceberg. I, I think that I read almost 10 times as much material as, as ever appears in the novel. And I, I, temp, I tend to be 
as careful as I possibly can be, which is a difficult thing to do, is not to get too entranced by the detail, right? Not, not just focus absolutely on that. I mean, one of the things, and it, th this was actually a, a 19th century Italian novelist who, who, who put it in these terms. He said that history tells us what people did. Historical novels tell us how people felt. Right. Um, and the other thing is, is that I would actually argue that the historical novel is almost always as much about the present as it is about the past. And in writing it, like when, when things kind of come forward, the novel will change. 1939 is sort of like huge kind of crisis between whatever you want to call it, liberal democracy and the right, whether it's fascist or Nazi, as, as also as, as the Spanish Civil War was. I've been following for a long time the rise of the radical right, um, not only in the United States or here, but in Europe. And I was becoming increasingly concerned about that. Um, and so I think that that was one of the reasons why the Spanish Civil War, in one sense, got injected into the, into the, the book, because a lot of people thought that that was where Nazism and fascism was needed to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't stopped there. And it, it took a global war to stop it. So part of, part of my interest in, in those things in the novel is actually conditioned by what I feel is happening now all across the world. Um, you know, when I was a student in the 1970s or the early 80s and someone would have said to me, communism it will be a dead issue, but fascism won't be. I would have thought they were crazy. You know, I, I would have thought that that fascism was a dead issue. That that um, the Holocaust and the Second World War would have entirely discredited it. Discredited communism collapsed. It collapsed under its own weight and you know its own totalitarian instincts. Now the right seems to be resurgent in a lot of the you know the world and i'm not talking about conservatism i'm talking about a radical right that the, you know the kind of radical populist right that you that that you see people that prompts people to attempt to storm the capital in the united states um i i think i think i think we we i think we are on the verge of dangerous times and and, and the 1930s were dangerous times, too. I mean, I, I think so, too. And I think that when I was learning about uh, the Second World War and the events leading up to it, I thought I, I would often think to myself, how did you know people not notice? How did people not really understand what was happening? And then cut to today, as I sit here and you scroll through Twitter, and uh, there are people running for office in the United States that are saying things like, well, if the school boards don't do what I want them to do, we'll storm the school boards with 20 strong men, and I'll make them see things my way. And, and I wonder, well, what are we doing about that? 
this is how things happen. No, I mean, inactivity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very difficult problem in a liberal democracy. How, how do you, how do you allow for freedom of expression? Mm. Uh, And, and, and how, how, how do you make a democracy work when some people have made the decision not to play by the rules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only thing that you can do is bring the full force of the law down on them. And, and when they commit violent acts or, or um, you know, overstep the laws that, that we all have to live with, they face the full penalty, you know, full penalty for it. I mean, in the United States, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not just picking on the United States. Um, every country has its its problems. You know, a lot of people made a distinction between what would have happened if African Americans committed illegal acts of the same nature as 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 the whites who stormed the Capitol. Uh, the reaction would have been far different. Right. And so in a liberal democracy, laws have to be equal. They have to be the same for everyone. Anyway, I'm going off on one on one of my my rants. But I mean, that uh, that's like part of what underlies the book. And mm-hmm. in the last chapter of the book, the the school teacher, Vidalia Taggart, is teaching in a private school and she's teaching very privileged kids. Um, the war is coming to an end. And what she's trying to teach them is to think for themselves. And I think we need, I think that's one thing that we can't forget when we, when we educate children or young adults or even educate ourselves is that we have a responsibility to think for ourselves. You're listening to my interview with Guy Vanderhag. His book, August Into Winter, is available wherever fine books are sold. It is interesting when you said earlier that historical novels are are all about the present. I have this idea that, and I think it's very true, that every generation thinks that they are living at the absolute peak of civilization. We often think that we've, you know, achieved the peak. And we've walked past all this other stuff, this bad stuff that's happened before. That's the question right there. And and the thing is, is we never expect the future to judge us. Hmm the way we judge the past, you know, the things that we take as absolutely granted, you know, irrefutable, incontrovertible. I mean, I've lived long enough to remember the assumptions that I grew up with, Mm -hmm. many of which are challenged now. Um, Who knows, maybe sometime in the future, for instance, meat eaters, will be regarded um, as criminals. I mean, we don't know. Or history is not a relentless march of progress, right? Things may may turn back to older ways of thinking and living that right now we've rejected. And, and, and we're saying, no, this was wrong. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We don't know. That's I mean, one of the things about historical novels, in my opinion, what they do is that they point out to us that the future, our future is as uncertain as the, the future was for the characters in the novel. In 1939, nobody knows what this war, which has just been declared, is going to mean. They have no idea. 
uh, they, they, they don't know what's going to happen. Um, so in an odd way, I think historical novels remind us that we all live with uncertainty. Five years ago, even though people were predicting, predicting it would happen, I didn't ever really believe that I would live through a pandemic. Yeah. You know, there are all kinds of experts who were, who were saying it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's happened in the past. It's going to happen again. And I was smug enough to think not in my lifetime, yeah. right? Not in my the lifetime. We have with everything. Yeah. I, I remember I, I wrote an essay a long time ago and it stuck in my mind and it was, it was about teaching history through fiction in schools. And one of the things that, that, that I talked about was, is that novels or, or, or works that were written when the thing were, was happening are the best record. And, and then I very smugly said, like for instance, a high school student now would, would have no conception of what an epidemic was like in the past and how terrified people were. So if you take Daniel Defoe's A Journal of a Plague Year, and he's got details in there where, where people are being paid. And when they take the coins for whatever someone has purchased, like a butcher, they drop them in a jar of vinegar, okay, to prevent the plague. And, you know, I, I said, like, you know, kids would have no idea now how terrified people were in the past of these kinds of things. Well, they do now. Well, Guy, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me about the book. It's fascinating. Uh, the conversation is fascinating. This is, uh, this is great. Thank you so much. Well, it's a great pleasure, and, and thank you for your, your uh, uh, great questions. I, oh, I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Oh, thank you. That was Guy Vanderhag joining me via Zoom from Saskatchewan. Find his book, August Into Winter, wherever you buy fine books. Comedian and actor Sean Majumder joins me via Zoom from Halifax to talk about his new CBC television show, Race Against the Tide. Now, on the show, 10 teams of two highly skilled sand sculptors compete to create extraordinary works of art made entirely out of sand while avoiding elimination. Not only are these best-in-show duos competing against one another, but they're competing against the Bay of Fundy. Here's Sean Majumder on Race Against the Tide. Our journey has been crazy. We left Los Angeles, where I live to uh, you know, last summer on our way to Newfoundland, we had decided we're gonna relocate to Newfoundland to ride out the pandemic. Right. And that's when I booked, uh, that's when they offered me the uh, Race Against the Tide show while I was in LA and it was like, oh I happen to be passing through the Maritimes anyways. So why don't we shoot this show? Why don't I go there? We do this show that I said I would never do these kinds of shows. I was like, nope. I'm a very serious actor. <laughs> I am committed to my craft. Yeah. I am never doing one of these unscripted, uh, you know, reality shows. Uh, but when it, when it came across my uh, de pseudo desk, if you yes. will, I was so intrigued by it. And also the fact that I was heading to the East Coast anyways, um, it was perfect. It was perfect. It lined up perfectly. And then when we started shooting the show, of course, it became a super joy and it was so much fun. And, you know, the, the, the material and the kind of 
uh, content that's in the show, I I was on board from the moment I got to um, to to Nova Scotia. It was amazing. Well, to New I, Brunswick, sorry. I, well, I didn't know that there was such a thing as competitive sand sculpture. Did you know anything about this at all? Not a clue. And in fact, probably like many of your listeners and uh, pseudo viewers, um, you know, uh, I hear the word castle come up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. Not with these sculptors. These are, are and it's true. Yep. They are world class sand sculptors that normally when they go to these festivals, I mean, they're building sculptures that are the size of buildings. Like we're talking huge sculptures that will go for, you know, probably like 15, 20 feet high, all the way across huge murals that take weeks, maybe days to build. And they're, they're meticulous and it's beautiful and they take their craft very seriously. And then to come into this competition, uh, it was very different for them because they only had six hours uh, really was the window that they had to use the skills that they have developed over the years to create something um, in that short amount of time with the t- tide really, truly bearing down on them uh, to have to finish something to keep the level of integrity of the kind of artistry that they usually bring to their work uh, uh, under the gun. It was amazing. I was really, really, truly tickled. And like, anytime you see me on the show, go, that's crazy. I meant it. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be one of those like overly enthusiastic hosts of some show. I was like, it was perfect. It was really, really, well, uh, I, I was so intrigued by it. You're listening to my interview with Sean Majumder. Check out his show Race Against the Tide on CBC television. It's a competitor's show, a competitive show, but I didn't get the sense that the competitors are uh, like doing that survivor thing where they're trying to outsmart and outwit everybody else. They're competing, but it's not nasty. We were all about if there's conflict that is born from the actual pressures that they're facing, then let that happen. Conflict is great for storytelling. There's no question about it. But but a lot of these shows, they falsify, they fake things, they make things way more intense. They cut things. I mean, I've been involved in things where I'm like, that didn't really happen that way. Why yeah, yeah. is it cut that way? That never was was that, you know? And so so that that that's something I didn't want to have to be a part of. And I, it, honestly, the pressures were, the tide was truly pressing down. The interesting thing personality-wise with these characters was that normally these individuals, it's 10 teams of two. So each couple that were working as a team normally compete against each other. So right. they had to get over that. So it was interesting to see how sometimes that created a little friction, but most times it created a cool unity. Um, but there was a father-son team that, you know, they had natural father-son struggles as, you know, uh, families do. There was a, a couple who, you know, one lady from Italy and another man from New Jersey, and they have this beautiful romantic love story, but they naturally had, uh, you know, some tension every now and then. And visually, it's so stunning. There were so many great things about it, you know? On this hour's 22 minutes, you profiled Joe Exotic. We're talking about the pandemic. The Joe Exotic Tiger King documentary got me through uh, the first part of the pandemic, like it did a lot of people. Um, people. You must have been surprised that you were part of that. Did you know in advance? And then 
tell me about that. And then tell me about this guy. You met him. You spent some time with him. What was that like? Yeah. So um, the first part of your question is no, I had no idea that I was involved or no, no idea that they were going to use that. Um, When, okay. So cut to uh, Trump was going to announce that he was shutting the border to Europe. Remember that when, when the, when the numbers were rising and then he said, Oh, I'm shutting the border to Europe. Shelby, myself and a few friends, my wife and I and, and baby were all in Mexico when that was happening. We had to cut our trip short. Um, and the day before we were flying home, I went for uh, scuba dope and I got sick. And I was like, oh, my God, I got COVID. I got to go home now. And so we, we changed our flights. We ended up coming into L.A. the night before he shut down. Packed. Place was packed with people trying to get home. Like I'm talking it was herds and herds of close contact people going through four hours in customs trying yeah. to get in. I'm sick. Uh, I was worried my baby was going to get sick. End up back home in L.A. Finally, I sit down. I isolate myself from my family because I'm like, just just in case, because yeah. I'm sick. Didn't know if I had COVID or not. Turned on Netflix. Started watching Tiger King. And I'm sick and delirious. Episode five comes on. And I was like, I was enthralled with the story because I had already interviewed him. Yeah. And then, boom, I pop on the screen. I thought I was hallucinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was a trip. So I was like, I laughed so hard. I, you know, immediately was texting my friend Corey, who was the producer who was on that trip with me. And it was so fun. Um, that guy was was the sweetest, uh, nicest, um, attempted murder suspect. I've ever met. Uh, um, you know, he was he was amazing. He was so genuine in his desire to uh, to bring good to the world, unless he was high on meth or his husband yeah, was yeah. Uh, shooting a, a shotgun. It, it, he was it was just one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had visiting that zoo, that park, that yeah. thing, that hostage tank for tigers and other animals. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was uh, it was definitely a trip. But it was one of those things where he was so nice and sweet. You're like, I really like you. And I'm also incredibly. I feel so sad. Yeah, and I'm time. scared of you a little bit. That was Sean Legender, actor and comedian. His new show is called Race Against the Tide. You'll find it on CBC Television. Big thanks to Sean for stopping by. Also want to thank Guy Vanderheg for joining me via Zoom from Saskatchewan. His book, August Into Winter, is available wherever you buy fine books. My biggest thanks, though, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. We'll talk again soon.